This is Two Guys in a River. I'm Steve Mathewson. And I'm Dave Getz. We're two lifelong friends who love fly fishing for trout. Our podcast is all about helping you catch more fish and deepening your love of the time you spend on the river. We are Two Guys in a River. For the love of fly fishing. Several years ago, I was stalked by a mountain lion. It was a mid-September day and I was standing on a high ridge in Montana's Beartooth Absorky Wilderness Area with a compound bow in one hand and an elk bugle in the other. Moments before, I tried my best to sound like a young bull elk as I blew on my bugle. The sound echoed off a stone rim on the peak to the north. I, I can still hear that and see that. And then silence. And then my hunting partner, Jeff, whispered, turn around and look. Well, I was excited. I thought, oh, great. I'm probably going to see a big six-point bull elk. But the sight sent a cold chill through my body, and that sight was a mountain lion sitting on its haunches. Man, it was about 35 yards away. And what struck me was how still it sat and how it blended in with its surroundings. I'd seen mountain lions before while hunting, but it was always a quick glance at one of these big cats bounding away through the timber. And this time, the, the sight was just uncanny. Well, my friend Jeff and I looked at each other, and I remember saying, I think we should get out of here. <laughs> yeah, really uh, brilliant uh, observation. <laughs> I mean, I had an idea what to do if a grizzly bear showed up, but a mountain lion? Uh, besides, I knew that shooting a mountain lion, even in self-defense, could land me in more trouble than if we got attacked. So, so Jeff, Jeff and I began, began walking back, back down the game trail we had been following. We were on this uh, spine on this ridge, and we headed to the game trail and started walking. And so did the mountain lion. Uh, when we stopped, it stopped. And this continued for about a quarter of a mile, and man, it was unnerving. Well, finally, the mountain lion seemed to vanish, and that was even more unnerving. Uh, maybe we thought, was it circling us for a surprise attack? But... Uh, about 30 minutes later, we made it down the mountain to the trailhead. Well, I thought a lot about that encounter over the years. Uh, Jeff and I figured that we got close to a den, and the mountain lion was just making sure that we left the area. But whatever the case, I learned a little bit more about that predator-prey relationship. The mountain lion saw us first, it blended in with its surroundings, and it didn't make a sound. And later, it occurred to me that those same predatory behaviors really work well for fly fishers. I mean, Dave, isn't it true that good fly fishers have to become hunters as well? Absolutely. There is a romantic notion tied to fly fishing that I think persists, uh, even though we know that it's more than that. But it conjures up those of us that fly fish, we move leisurely through the water, making artistic casts, and we're one with nature. And You can call it romance, but it, it's the best fly fishers are like that mountain lion. Uh, they're predators. They move stealthily and purposefully. They stay hidden. They keep quiet until they're ready to, to cast or overtake their prey, really just like a predator. And that's the topic of our podcast today, hunting for trout. Uh, yes, we realize that we're fly fishers, but even fly fishers need to go hunting for trout. Uh, yeah, what we're arguing is that the best fly fishers are predators. 
Yeah, for sure. And we need to tip our uh, hat and give credit here to Gary Borger. Uh, he wrote a fascinating book titled The Angler as Predator. So this is not a new phrase and it's not a new concept, but it's helpful to, to rethink it and to talk about it today because it helps us think more critically about what we're doing on the water. And one of the points that, that Gary Borger makes is that this whole idea of the mystical romantic notion of fly fishing, what I mentioned just uh, moments ago, which I got from him, by the way, he writes, fly fishing is anything but a mystical experience. It's simply a predator-prey relationship in which the predator has defined a set of rules by which to engage the prey. Yeah, that's, that's a great, great point. point. Yeah, Gary Borger is a fantastic fly fisher, and we're, we're grateful to count him as a friend. Dave, I have to say, you are especially good at this. I mean, I've watched you stalk rising fish, and you, uh, you've you actually caught them. <laughs> Wait a minute. Yeah, sorry to sound so surprised, so surprised about you catching them. That's not what I meant. But uh, seriously, when we think about predatory behaviors, and we have a, a short list of, of those today, uh, what's, what's one of the first behaviors, predatory behaviors that's going to give you a higher rate of success when you're stalking a trout? The very first is the importance of staying low to the ground. And this idea of creeping up to a run or a hole on your knees if you have to, this idea of doing whatever it takes to either stay out of sight or keep a really low profile. Sometimes you're able to do that as you hide behind brush or tall grass. Just recently, in fact, yesterday, I was fishing with my son, uh, Christian, and we were fishing uh, a stream in Wisconsin, and we took the day and drove up and drove back in one day. And this was his first time. Now, he's 24, and it's my bad that he hasn't been fly fishing, but it was his first time. And I watched him as we were walking along this small stream. And so the first thing I coached him on was you know you're a big guy and and there's no trees there's no there's no place to hide so you have to keep a really low profile so drop to your knees maybe 10 yards before you get to where you want to cast and walk the rest of the 10 yards on your knees and on your hands and once you get there then you can kind of raise up a bit and begin to cast but not to stand up and it's amazing when you do that, you start, if, especially if fish are starting to rise a little bit, they'll stay rising if you just stay low to the ground. That's a great point. Um, I, I remember a few years ago when we were fishing Fan Creek in uh, Yellowstone National Park. I don't know if you remember that day, but uh, there, there, was a, there was a particular run. We didn't catch a lot that day. I don't know that I caught any, but uh, there was one run where they were they were feeding, and, and I remember you kind of crawled up through some grass. I think there was some sagebrush along that creek, and and that made all the difference. So you, you got down into the place, and, and I, I thought, man, if anybody deserves to catch one, you do because of all that uh, army crawl that you did. And you did. You caught it. You remember that? Yeah, I do, actually. That was the same uh, trip. It wasn't a trip. That was the same hike that we, where we ran into that one fly fisher who uh who who wasn't happy with our speed on the trail do you remember that 
Yeah, yeah, I do. I, re- I remember that. Well, and he uh, he wasn't very conversant either. I think no. he finally grunted after we said hello. But uh, man, he was a he was a man on a mission. So yeah, he was not. Uh, he to he be was chatty. staying low to the ground. Yeah, he was staying low to the ground, wasn't he? <laughs> oh man, I do remember that fan creek, and I remember especially the it was BWO hatch and and and. They weren't. It wasn't. They weren't rising a lot, but there was a little bit of a pop where they. You started to see some rise and a few. You'd see a few BWOs, and I remember coming around that little bend there. It was after we saw that otter that was in the water that was right in front of us, and it was. It was a, a really good example of how to sneak up uh, on a run. And in those situations, you generally get one cast, maybe two casts, and that's it. And and so you have to really make sure that you stock that run by staying low to the ground. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so yeah, whatever it takes, it's uh, it's easy to be lazy, and I'm uh, I'm good at that. So like, yeah, I don't want to get down on my hands and knees, but that can make all the difference in the world. So that, that's the first thing: stay low to the ground. Uh, second thing that that you want to do if you're if you're acting like a predator is you want to minimize sight and sound. Uh, that is, you don't want the fish to see you, you don't want them to hear you. Now sight, uh, I think the thing here is to be careful about making too many false casts, especially on a sunny day over a crystal clear stream. Uh, Dave, I think you and I have both fished the Fall River and Rocky Mountain National Park, but never together, have we? I don't think so. I fished with your brother. Yeah, that's right. I guess that's been the common denominator. But I remember one day on on the, the Fall River. I mean, Fall River. It's kind of like the the Blue River, the Green River in the Driftless in Wisconsin. It, it's just a small stream. And I remember uh, coming up to this one bend. It was this gorgeous run, and I walked up and started casting and. Uh, man, I, I saw about three trout scurry for cover, and it dawned on me that, uh, no pun intended, that, oh yeah, the sun is high in the sky, and and I, I made another cast, and sure enough, yeah, the shadow of my line was right across that thing. So you really have to be careful about minimizing your, your sight. Now, that's that's also the point that you just made about staying low to the ground, but uh, you don't want them to see your cast either. Now, sound is another issue. Now, we're not we're not saying here that trout are going to hear you talking. You know, it's not that you have to whisper, you know, not that you can't yell at your buddy, but they will detect the compression waves of sound from that funk when you step too heavily. I mean, trout have inner ears on both sides of their head, and they have that lateral line that that runs right through the middle of their the side of their body that plays a role in their hearing so tread softly don't don't go clomping along uh i mean literally tiptoe uh, that that's very helpful and again think like a predator you know predators uh you know they, they stay hidden you can't see them you can't hear them that, that still strikes me when i think about that mountain lion i had to keep looking it was almost like a it was almost like a mount that was somebody had sat there, like a taxidermist had placed a thing there. It's like, is this is this really real? I mean, I, I didn't see any twitching, you know, anything, and I certainly didn't hear that mountain lion. So that's what we have to do when we're fishing. So 
Uh, number one, stay low to the ground. Number two, minimize sound, sight and sound. Uh, Dave, what else do predator fly fishers do? The third is to keep watching. And and it's easy, I think, as you move up the river, and especially you and I, because we move pretty quickly up the river, to just move quickly to the next run that we see up ahead. But predators are always watching. And it's wise to watch for feeding fish before you cast. And this is hard for me to do because I, I am quite impulsive. I don't know if it's impulsive so much as it is. I just want to start fishing. And to sit for you a You fished m- with me. Yes, you that's true. You fished with me too much. And, right. and my uh, impulsiveness has, has rubbed off on you, Dave. <laughs> I've learned a lot from you, Steve. Thank you. <laughs> but this idea of sitting and watching for a minute or two before you cast and... You might spot feeding trout in an unexpected place, even right in front of you where you plan to step. In fact, just yesterday, uh, the the trout in this small creek were feeding on caddis, and 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 they and they weren't feeding. Um, what's the word? It, it wasn't. It wasn't like the water was boiling and there was some sort of frenzy going on. And you'd have to sit there, and then you'd see one sip. And and then sometimes there'd be a little bit larger splash. Now, these were not big fish. I think the ones I caught were probably, the biggest one was maybe 12 inches. The others were maybe 10 to 11 inches. And, and so they weren't making big splashes. And so you could walk up to a run and not see it, especially if, for example, there was a time gap of maybe two to three minutes between times they were feeding. So the idea to keep watching especially before you make that cast, that first cast into that, the next run that you're fishing is, is really so, so important. And even large fish don't always make a big splash, do they? I mean, you, we, we've seen, uh, you know, 18, 20 inches uh, feeding and, and you just see a nose and just this little ripple or, or maybe you see a slight roll. So, yeah, you, you're right. It really does... It really does pay to watch, and uh, I know sometimes that gets me slowed down. It makes me more alert, but, yeah, there are times where <laughs> I know that if, if I wouldn't have sat and watched for a little bit or stood and watched, that I would have stepped right in to a place where trout were feeding, or uh, it might be a spot that I, I miss. I, I remember one year on the Owyhee River fishing that with my son in eastern Oregon, and, you know, there was this beautiful run that we were fishing. And, and out of the corner of my eye, I noticed on the opposite bank uh, about, oh, maybe 15, 20 yards up from this run, there, there were two or three fish feeding right in this pocket water. This really shallow uh, kind of water right along the, the shore, right along the bank. And... Man, we, we ended up, I think we each caught, uh, I think one of them was like a 16-inch, the other was an 18-inch uh, brown. I uh, got them on pale morning duns that day. Wow. But, yeah, if I hadn't been, if I hadn't been alert, um, or, or probably if I hadn't been fishing that one particular run and happened to see that out of the corner of my eye, I would have missed it. So, yeah, that's a, that's a great point. Uh, another uh, way that we can act like predators would be uh, related to our dress, and and that would be to dress in, in earth tones. 
Uh, Gary Borger says that the worst color to wear is bright white. I mean, it, it just leaps out against most backgrounds, especially the, the trees and bushes, which tend to be earth tones, green or brown. So yeah, it's not a bad idea. It's a good idea to wear green, blue, gray, brown, dark, tan. Uh, you don't have to wear camo. Uh, in fact, you know, if you have a you have a shirt, you've got a vest on, you kind of be breaking up your body, and I think that's the key as well. But uh, stay away from those uh, real bright, uh, light, bright uh, kind of colors. And, and if you have a white shirt, that's okay, but uh, maybe you have your vest on over it or, or something. Uh, but if you can stick with those earth tone colors, that really helps. Now, that's not an issue when you're fishing larger rivers, but it, it really is with smaller streams. So again, it's uh, you know it's just a little thing, but uh, sometimes uh, these little things can add up and kind of give you uh, an edge. So, yeah, Dave, I know you often wear, uh, it, it's kind of that camo, uh, dry fit uh, shirt. That's a, that's a great option. Hey, wear that, wear that rather than, uh, I've got this Columbia dry fit, but it's really a light tan, and every time I've washed it over the years, it's almost white, so uh, uh, I need to ditch that thing. I want to insert a little bit of a sidebar here. Uh, I think it is really critical to learn how to stock fish if you're fishing smaller spring creeks or smaller creeks, and I, I honestly didn't learn any of this fishing in the West. And those of you who fish big rivers all the time, some of this you're thinking, really? Because your casts are longer. I mean, if you're casting out 50, 60 feet, 70 feet, uh, longer casts, your nymphing runs that are way out in front of you, or you're dry fly fishing and it's, you know, 50 to 70 feet, that's different. You know, it's just a lot different. I remember fishing, right. was it Hebgen Lake or was it Quake Lake that we fished last year? or two years Quake, ago yeah. mm -hmm. it was Quake Lake yeah so mm -hmm. you know they're they're rising and we were stocking those trout uh we would find out where we'd see a rise there'd be we'd spot a rise and then we'd actually cast to the rise but we were still casting 30 to 50 feet on most of those casts so they're way out in front of us so the point is it's really in these smaller creeks and then the spring creeks for us at least in the driftless uh, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Iowa, where we have fish, where if you do not do this, you will struggle to catch fish and you'll think there's something wrong with you. And I guess there is, it has to do with it. You're not stocking the fish. So I think this, when you mentioned this, it's not a big, as big an issue in the bigger rivers. That's right. And it's really in these smaller creeks where, where, where being seen and being heard is so, uh, critically important not to be that, I should say, not to be seen, not to be heard. Yeah, that's a that's a great point, Dave. I'm glad you mentioned that because this is not, man, this is not, oh, you need to know this if you're going to fish the Yellowstone or the Madison. Uh, no, it, it's for smaller places. Although I will say, uh, and, and you're absolutely right, I will say there are places where we fished in the bear trap on the Madison where the first what, maybe the first 10 yards of that uh, act like a, a small stream. And, and so we have applied some of those things there. Uh, in fact, remember the last time we fished the, that run that we like to fish in the bear trap? It was last fall that you caught that gorgeous brown. And I mean, it was right, right at, uh, close to shore. Remember that? Wasn't it, Dave? Wasn't oh, it like that's two right. or three feet? Actually, that's a really good example. Yeah. Oh, that's right. That's a good example of my pausing. I, I mean, I'm not 
congratulating myself, but I do remember going, having been there before, there's that little run that is just right off the right off the bank. And then the better run, at least the one we've caught a lot of fish, is really out farther. But I remember thinking, you know, I need to slow down. And that you're right, that is where I caught that big brown. So you, you can apply it there, but yeah, I, I think where we fish the Yellowstone in the park or even the Gardner River, it's like, no, you, you don't have to worry too much about some of these things. Although still, you know, if you get into the mindset of being a predator, I think what it'll do is it'll cut down on mistakes. So yeah, yeah that, I'm, I'm sure glad you, uh, you mentioned that. So we've talked about staying low to the ground. We've talked about minimizing sight and sound. We've talked about keeping our eyes peeled, you know, keep watching, that's what predators do. Uh, we've talked about dressing in earth tones. So Dave, what's a fifth practice that fly fishing predators uh, ought to be paying attention to? Uh, the fifth, I think, is not to disturb the upstream water. And this is really true in smaller creeks, whether it's a freestone creek or a spring creek. You know, so let's say you need to cross a river to fish a particular run. Uh, try to cross it downstream from where you want to fish so you don't kick up debris and cloud the water. And I, so there are some creeks where, especially like with dry fly fishing, you really want to to get on top of the run and... They do what's called the you know the parachute cast, where you 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 cast it out and then you pull it back and let it drift down the run, and and that's really important that that water is not disturbed. And so just being careful and thinking through if you're fishing and crossing back and forth, uh, and you want to actually come from the top of the run and you're fish or you're maybe you're fishing downstream, and there's just different ways to make sure that that you're not disturbing that water. Yeah, I think that's so important. I remember the last time we fished in the, oh, maybe it was in Minnesota in one of those small spring creeks, and I was so excited to fish this particular run, and and, and I thought I went upstream enough. It, it didn't really work to go downstream uh, because there was a couple, there were a couple of big, huge pools. Uh, so I had to go upstream, and I thought, okay, this, this is far enough. Well, as soon as I stepped in, it was... Uh, I didn't realize it was kind of muddy, and man, I, I sent a cloud of plume of mud down the river that, in fact, I remember waiting about five minutes. I, I thought, that, that'll, that's going to scare fish, especially if I get up there. And uh, So, I, yeah, I, I kind of learned my lesson, or I, I have to keep relearning it. So, yeah, that's one I don't think we, we think about you know, nearly enough. One more that I think would be worth mentioning, and that would be uh, to wear polarizing sunglasses. Now, that may be obvious. Maybe, maybe everybody does that. But uh, first of all, sunglasses protect your eyes, and that's reason enough to wear them. But they also help you as a predator. I mean, they, they cut the glare, and they really allow you to see into the water. And, and that can help you read water, that can help you read a run, but it can also uh, help you uh, uh, spot fish. I remember a big brown that I caught several years ago in the Gallatin River. It was a Sunday afternoon, and I, I drove from uh, my, my house to the Gallatin River. It was only a couple miles, and, and there was a beautiful run about 10 feet out. But just as I was getting ready to cast, I, I noticed... 
wow, there's a big brown cruising in the shallows about two feet in front of me. And, and if I hadn't had my sunglasses on, I know I wouldn't have seen that because of the glare. And, and I tossed a streamer in front of him, and wouldn't you know, he attacked it. And that was, that was a lot of fun. But wow. You do. You, you have to wear a, a, you know, a good pair of sunglasses. And even if the sun's not out, uh, you know, even if it's a somewhat cloudy day, those sunglasses can still make a difference. I guess what we're saying is that uh, the best fly fishers act like predators stalking their prey. If you're going to be a good fly fisher, you have to become a trout hunter, right? Not just a fly fisher, but you have to become a trout hunter. One of the things that I remember from that book, I think it's that book. Now I could be conflating uh, books by Borger, but there are some images of either he's in Australia or New Zealand or someplace where there's a spotter and then the the actual fly fisher, there's the hunter, <laughs> and they spot these big fish that are cruising. And once they spot them, then the fly fisher sneaks up onto that, you know, finds the right angle and casts the fly. Because generally in those situations, you get one shot, right? You get one bad cast and that fish is gone. But that is a classic example of the stalker. Uh, and again, most adventure Fly fishers often will do that, you know, places like New Zealand and Australia, wherever they go to do this, and you see this. But it's just a good practice for your local stream where you're fishing. Yeah, it really is. I think that was New Zealand, now that you mention it. But I remember doing that once with my brother. Uh, there was a run where we saw some fish, and it was actually downriver, downstream from us, but there was a lot of... Uh, well, I think there was some brush on, on the side of it, and it was a little bit tricky. So I was maybe 30 yards you know, upriver or upstream, and, and I remember kind of guiding him as he kind of uh, you know, leaned over this brush, and I told him where to dangle the fly, you know, kind of in relationship to a tree on the other side of the stream. So, yeah, that can work even in, even in small streams. All right, so... Uh, get your predator on, get your stock on, and uh, get out there and uh, hunt down them trout, right? <laughs> get your stock on. I like that. I know. That sounds rather cliche-ish, isn't it? But, hey, never. there's always time for a good cliche. Yes. Well, now it's time for great stuff from our listeners. Uh, no cliches here. Uh, here are a couple of comments on our podcast, Flies That Work Anytime and Anywhere. Uh, in that podcast, we identified six flies that work anytime and anywhere. Dave, you remember what those are? We probably ought to review those for our listeners. I do. We had two dry flies, the parachute atoms and the elk hair caddis. We had two nymphs, the beadhead prince, or the hare's ears, and the copper john. And then for the streamer, we had the woolly booger. And for the wild card, it was the San Juan worm. That's right. Well, here are a couple of comments. The first comes from Roger. Man, I'm so glad to see Roger showing up again. He's been a long-time uh, uh, listener, unless this is a different Roger, then, then welcome. <laughs> uh, anyway, here's his comment. He says, the San Juan worm, what else? End <laughs> of quote. <laughs> yes, thank you, Roger. Yeah, I kind of put a punctuation on that, uh, that wild card choice. I mean... Yeah, what else? That, that's such a great fly, isn't it? And uh, it, yeah. it works, seems like, in just about every condition. So, good. 
Uh, then our friend David said, that's a pretty reliable list you mentioned. I would add my CDC Emerger, the F-Fly. And yeah, that's a, that's a good one as well. And he says, and probably a cripple. Yeah, that, that makes sense too. And, and then he says, maybe a trico spinner. Yeah, yep, 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 but yep. What it, I know. But then he says, but what it really comes down to is any fly you have the most confidence in. Cheers, gentlemen, and stay safe. You know, that's a great point. If you have confidence in the fly, I, I think there's something to that because you will present that uh, with, with confidence. Uh, so, yeah, if you feel good about the fly, kind of goes back to what we said last uh, in that podcast that uh, uh, one day uh, Bud Lilly, when he owned his fly shop in West Yellowstone, uh, everybody that came in, he said, so what are they hitting on? And the guy would say, oh, this little baby, this is the only thing that works. And, you know, by the end of the day, there were about 12 or 20 uh, little <laughs> babies that were the only thing that worked. And so, yeah, probably, hey, if you have confidence in something, stick with it. You don't have to switch it just because uh, somebody else tells you to. If you have it in the right size, Yeah. chances are you're going to catch fish. Well, that's going to do it for today. Thanks again for listening. I'm Steve Mathewson. And I'm Dave Getz. Until next time, we are two predators in a river. <laughs> for the love of fly fishing. <laughs> <laughs>